How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid men cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Those are verses 5 to 9 of Psalm 92, which along with Psalm 91 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, June the 17th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look in the book of Numbers today. We're in uh, Numbers 13, 1 to 3, and then 20, verses 21 to 30. In uh, Matthew's Gospel, we are in chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, and in Romans, we're in uh, chapter 2, verse 25 to uh, chapter 3, verse 8. So um, the, this is the story of the spies going into the land. And, and one of the things that, that before, before I taped this today, Suzanne and I were talking about another parable, actually, and talking about, about the larger implications of that parable. And I'm going to talk about some of that in the uh, lesson today. And that is, does God have the right to judge? Um, it do, how does he get the right to judge? And how do we perceive God's character? Do we perceive his character based on the actions of people and what God tolerates? Or do we take a different view, an understanding of God? And, and we should be taking a, an understanding that's based around his character as expressed in the, the willing sacrifice of his son, Jesus, on the cross, which points to the wickedness of humanity. God's desire for humanity to return to him and to turn to him. And, and, and I don't mean just the Jewish people, but, but all of humanity. And so God's character is such that he could have destroyed the world again, as he did in uh, Genesis 6, but he chooses not to, and he provides the antidote for sin. And, and if we accept that antidote, we accept it, we should accept it in every way. He can't be just Savior without being Lord. And if he is Lord, if he, were, if he were truly Lord of all those who take his name, the world would be a different place. That's just the honest truth, but we continue in sin. In, in the Numbers passage, what we get is God prompting Moses to say, send some spies into the land. Now, did God know how this was going to turn out? Of course he did. Why did he do it? Well, that, his ways are inscrutable, but at some level, these people were not prepared to come into the land. What we get actually, is the level of their unpreparedness to believe God and to trust Him and to do the things that they said at Mount Sinai that they would do. We will do and we will listen. They weren't prepared to do as He commanded here. So it's not really, uh, uh, the spies are not really spying out the land. They're really spying out God's people. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them out from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all them men who were heads of the people of Israel. So they would have been from among the 72 that, that were chosen and brought in, including Eldad and Medad, who prophesied in the camp, but it's some of whom had received the Spirit of God when Moses complained that he couldn't bear the weight of this people. So from among those 72, these 12 are chosen. We see the same thing in the New Testament. We see this, there are 72 sent out at one point, but from those, 12 were chosen. And so here, 12 are chosen to go up and spy out the land. Now, in the Gospels, remember that when they were, they were sent out, they were sent out to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. Here, 
they're they're intended to go see is the land as God promised. So they spied, went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, from Lebo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. Heman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now, who are who are the descendants of Anak? Now, that's a very huge question. And the Anakim are giants. They are giant clans who are in the land. So that's who. Uh, Ahimon, Sheshai, and Talmai are. So they are the descendants of Anak. And the, the descendants of Anak would be those who kind of descend from the line of the uh, Nephilim, the, the sons of God who came down and mated with the um, children, the, the daughters of men. And so these are the giant clans that remain in the land at this time. Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eschol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between the two of them. Now, I don't know if you've ever cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, but you don't need a pole to carry it. So this is abundance. And they carried it. Uh, they also brought some pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eschol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. The word means cluster. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. So they spent 40 days wandering to and fro in the land, which would have been about the time it would have taken for, to get from Mount Sinai to the land, to be honest with you. And so they've gone out throughout the land. And then they came to Moses and Aaron, to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. I mean, so you would be heartily encouraged if you had just spent uh, time in wilderness if you had spent that time in the wilderness and, and, and subsisted on manna, and remember two chapters before this, they're fussing about the manna, that they wanted something else. And so now they're bringing back the produce of the land, and oh my gosh, how, how good that must have looked after having had only manna for this season of time. And they came to Moses, well, they brought back word to them and to all the congregations, showed them the fruit of the land, and then they told him, we came to the land which you sent us. They told Moses, it flows with milk and honey. Familiar language is exactly what God said, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So they're telling them about who is where in the land. <clears throat> But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let's go up and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And as I said, I, I believe without question that the issue here is God testing his people to see if they're ready to come into the land and they're found wanting. Because the, the other spies are going to carry the day. But, but there's a reason he sent them up. You know, is it exactly as I told you it would be? And their response is yes. It's exactly as God said it would be. However, ugh, that's the problem. But these were slaves. They were not soldiers. And so when they come into this place, they have to make a decision here. And, and the decision is whether we are personally able to overcome or whether we serve a God who's able to overcome. And, and it's a huge test for the people to see what the level of their faith is because their level, the level of their faith is going to matter. And you don't want to go into battle with those who don't have any faith. Later, God will give them a, well, a, a, a commandment that has to do with uh, people conscripted for war. 
And so there are certain exemptions to that. One is somebody who's built a house. One is somebody who's just gotten married or engaged. And the, the final one is one who's planted a vineyard. And in all three of those cases, the issue is that they have worked hard for something and they have anticipated the enjoyment of something and they ought to be allowed then to, to enjoy it. So there's varying uh, time frames which those men have exemptions from service. There's one final one, and you see it in the story of Gideon, and that is if you're afraid you can go home. Because the problem is, you're a detriment to the morale of the rest of the group. And so those people who are afraid can go home. Now, they go home in shame, certainly. But here what we get is a test to see if God's people trust him, to see if they're afraid or if they trust him rather than their own strength. In the gospel today, Peter comes up and he, he says something here. And, and this is, you know, so you can question, is God good because he did that thing? But no, he is a good God because he did that thing, because his intention was to conquer the land, and these people weren't ready to conquer the land. Here, Peter comes up and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. You know, if you think about it, seven times, is, it's pretty generous, right? I mean, the Old Testament kind of says three. Peter's willing to say seven. Jesus says oh, 77 times. You know, if you had to show somebody that much magnanimity and forgiveness 77 times, would you be able to do it? Or would you give up long before you ever got to that point? Well, God's, this is what Jesus is saying. is God is long-suffering and forbearing with us in sin. It doesn't mean that ultimately judgment delayed is judgment never happening. No, this has to do with, with God's long-suffering, his loving kindness, his forbearance with us with those whom he loves. But it doesn't mean that judgment won't eventually come. But here's how seriously he says we are supposed to take our uh, responsibility to forgive others as he forgives us. And and so Jesus tells this parable, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. Now, what he owes him, it would be literally impossible. At that time, it would have been impossible to be in that much debt, much less a servant be in that kind of debt. And then it would be impossible for him to earn that back and pay it at any point in time. So he's asking for mercy that that he pretty well knows is always going to be mercy. It's never going to be anything else because he's never going to be able to make restitution for what, what's owed here. So he says, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a hundred days of wages, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Uh, there's no mercy in here, is there? No pity or anything. He wasn't choked. <laughs> he was brought before the king in order to pay. Here, he's choking his fellow servant over this, and so we get a sense of his character right away. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant <laughs> fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He, he's saying this exactly the same thing to his fellow servant that the servant said to the king. He, the servant, refused and went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. No mercy at all. This is a guy who owes an unimaginable sum of money who could surely have done without a hundred denarii. But no, he's going to go after this servant. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay off all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I'm going to tell you something. This gets overlooked more than anything else that, that you can ever see in Scripture. I know way too many Christians who, Christians who are holding things against their brothers and sisters. It, it's, it, it's the reason in the previous passage Jesus told them to go deal with sin. And, and it's, it's not just confronting the other person in their sin that's at issue in that, in, in that commandment, the way we're supposed to be with one another. No, it's for your benefit too, because you need to forgive. So it's not just the sinner, and that's what Jesus is answering here. It's not just the sinner whose life is at stake in this. It's the person who's been sinned against. Because his need to forgive is equal to the sinner's need to be forgiven. And and God's not judging the sinner in this. He's judging the one who's been sinned against. That's who gets judged. And I know way too many Christians who harbor things against their brothers and sisters. Part of the reason is you don't confront it. Part of the reason is you don't deal with it. And so you just set it to the side, but it's never actually forgiven. And and if the person repents, then it's your job and responsibility under God to forgive because that's the whole point of the cross, is that you've been forgiven. And so the cross needs to be held between us and those who sin against us. It's a reminder for both of us to be like God, to, be, to have his character. And, and Jesus, this is one of the very few things where Jesus talks about judgment in this way, in a very specific instance. It's, it's, a, it's a necessity for our own salvation to forgive others. It's a measure of our own discipleship. It's a measure of our own Christlikeness. It's incredibly important that we get this right. So if you're sitting here listening to this and you have uh, unforgiveness against brothers and sisters, deal with it. Deal with it. Don't let it go another day. Paul in Romans, he, he says, if circumcision indeed is a value, if you obey the law. So it, it, it does have some meaning. If you're, if you're living up to the obligation that you took when you t- undertook to be circumcised, then, then it's a value. But it's not a value unless you obey the law. He says, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You've got to do something to restore that relationship. It's as if you were not part of the nation if you don't confess your sin and deal with it. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And so Paul's basically saying that, 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 that if, if this is true, then the converse must be true. If obedience to the law is the important thing, and, and obedience to the law then determines the, the value of circumcision, then if you keep the law, even if you're uncircumcised, aren't you counted as circumcision? And then he who's physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So you'll stand in judgment because of your obedience and your righteousness. You'll stand in judgment against unrighteousness, whether you're circumcised or not. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So Paul is tearing down 
at some level, a belief that, that persists to this day. And that is, I'm Jewish because, well, I'm Jewish. Because I'm circumcised. I was born into the right clan. I was born into the, to the right group. But Paul says that doesn't actually mean anything. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And I could say the same thing about Christians. No one is a Christian who has merely been baptized and made a public statement of faith. If that's all you have, you don't have anything. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. He says, nor is circumcision outward and physical. It was never intended just to be this outward thing. I mean, we would call people dinos, Democrats in names only, rhinos, Republicans in name only, Christians in name only, C-I-N-O, J-I-N-O. And Paul says that before anybody does, he, he's, he's saying, no, that's not the definition of a Jew. It's not just simply somebody who's been circumcised <clears throat> ritually. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, which is exactly what God says in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, for instance, by the Spirit, not by the letter. It's exactly what Jesus says, <coughs> excuse me, um, in John 3. It's exactly what he says when he's talking to Nicodemus, that there's more to it than that. You've got to be reborn. You've got to be born again, born of water in the Spirit. And it's exactly what Paul says. Is He says, that person, one who is a Jew inwardly, his praise is not from man but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is the circumcision? M- much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So it, why is it beneficial to be a Jew? Because you know God's word. You know God's way. You know his commandments. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, un- faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. So the the sinfulness of man doesn't nullify the righteousness and the goodness and the merciful nature of God. I I preached at a a sermon at a funeral, I don't even know how many years ago, now probably 15 years ago, and and if I could get one thing into people's heads, then this would be it, that, that people blame God for the way things are. Genesis 3 said it's not God's fault, it's our fault. And, and you can complain that things are the way they are, and why doesn't God do something about it? But, but what would you have him do? Would you have him destroy the world and everything and everybody in it? The way that he did in Genesis 6, is that really what you want? I mean, if you don't see yourself as a sinner, then you can think that way. If you don't see your own need for forgiveness, then you can think of things that way. But you'd be judged too by the standard that you're trying to hold up. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It, not, not just me. He loved the entire world. And we make it too individualized. And then we begin to question God's character. When God provided for us the antidote to sin, and then he provided for us a, a, the Holy Spirit to guide us into that way of life. It's not his fault we don't live up to that. It's your fault. It's my fault. It's always our fault. Because while we have the Spirit of God, we still fail. And yet we blame God for the way things are. We, we don't live in a just world. We live in a world that will ultimately be judged in justice and that justice will prevail in the life eternal, which is the life we're destined to live in Christ Jesus. He says, that, so let God be true as it's written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world if he's not righteous 
in inflicting wrath and in judging the world. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Well, because I lie. So if the only thing that matters at the end of the day is the glory of God, then if I lie and he's glorified somehow through that, then then why am I still being judged as a sinner? Does that seem right? Paul says, yeah, absolutely it's right. <laughs> absolutely it's right because it's a sin. doesn't matter what the end result of that is. God's going to get glory, period, end of sentence. And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. If you believe that, if you believe that I've said that, then you need to be condemned for that. Because I certainly would never say to you, and Paul would never say, that, that I'll do evil so that good can come out of it. If I do this evil thing, then I know something good will come from it. No, you did an evil thing. You will be judged for that, and your condemnation will be just because it's sin. So it's that simple. But, but, so it, but is God a God of justice? No, the, a world of justice wouldn't exist because we're all sinners. And that's exactly the point of Paul's argument in the first 11 chapters of Romans, is that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and, and that, that sin deserves punishment and judgment. But, but God's mercy triumphs over judgment in that he sent his Son, and all those who receive him will pass through that judgment as though we have the righteousness of Jesus because of faith in him. But that faith has to show itself forth, as Paul argues here, in obedience, as Jesus showed in the uh, parable of the day that that what you do actually matters more than anything.